We're looking today at the song Mary sang and wrote before Jesus was born. This is a passage that's very familiar, very uh, well-known in the church, and yet it's a passage most of us have never heard a sermon on. And when you see the contents of her song, you'll understand why. Because this song is unique. It's, it has a name. It, it's called the Magnificat. That's the name that the English church has given it, the English-speaking church. Magnificat is a Latin word that means magnify. That's the first word of the song in Latin. It's, it's reminiscent of another song in the Old Testament. I'll get to that later. But there's something else about this song that's unique. It is a very prophetic song. Mary, as we know, young girl, maybe as young as 13, we think of her as very meek, very mild. That song that Jenny just sang expresses very well the, the fears and the anxieties that young, that young woman must have felt. And yet in this moment, she becomes a prophet. And that's a word that we misunderstand, prophet. We hear prophecy and we think foretelling the future, right? But if you read the prophetic books of the Old Testament, if you read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Hosea, Joel, and so forth on down the line, you'll find that there is some foretelling in those books, but mostly, mostly the prophets weren't speaking about the future. They were speaking about present-day events. And they complained a lot. The, the prophets were grumpy guys. They were cranky. They were always angry about something. People didn't like the prophets. They were not popular people. And here's why. This is, this is the way I um, illustrate this. Do you know anybody in your life who's very, very into cleanliness and sanitation and purity? My wife is one of those people. I should own stock in Purell and Clorox and Lysol. She makes sure that we're always safe from infection. She's very vigilant about making sure that we keep ourselves clean. Now, I, on the other hand, am not that way. I, I'm, I'm, if, if Carrie's over here in, on the spectrum of cleanliness, I'm on the opposite end. I, I, I belong with those people who are firm believers in the five-second rule. Are you, are you familiar with the five-second rule? In fact, I believe that if you find some food that looks really good and it's on the ground, you don't know how long it's been there. As long as there's no visible dirt on it or you can easily brush the dirt off, it's, it's fair game. And so... You know, in addition, God has given me this very, very weak sense of smell, and I think that's His grace because He wants me, you know, to be able to live with myself. So, you know, we're at opposite ends of the spectrum, and what I'm about to say is, is going to shock you, and so I apologize for that in advance. But this difference causes some tension in our relationship. It, it just does. And so sometimes she will say things like, um, you're not really going to eat that, are you? And uh, you did wash your hands, right? And I hope you're paying your premiums on your life insurance. Okay, she doesn't really say that last one, but, but the others, it, it, it's absolutely true. Now, imagine someone who wasn't just cognizant of germs and dirt and infection, but someone who could literally see it. And everywhere they went, all they saw was the possibility of disease and epidemic and who constantly saw what was going on, the unseen realities you and I ignore and are blissful, blissfully oblivious of. Imagine a person like that living in a world full of people like me. Do you think that person might be a little bit on edge? Do you think that person might spend a little bit of time running around saying, what's the matter with you people? Why don't you wash your hands? Don't you understand what could happen? Don't you see you're killing yourselves? 
And we might get tired of such a person. We might consider that person a little cranky, a little grumpy, a little annoying, and yet they'd be right. And they would be there to save our lives. See, a, a prophet was someone, is someone, who is so in tune with God and is given such a gift by God that they can see the unseen realities you and I can't. I'm not talking about bacteria now. I'm talking about our relationship with God. I'm talking about the way our choices that differ from God's will destroy us. How, how you and I can go out and just do things that seem right to us and there are no immediate consequences and so we think we're doing okay but a prophet sees, no, you're heading down a path of destruction. And they can't not speak out about it. Jeremiah talks about it in his book. He, he says, I, I wanted to keep silent, but when I kept silent, it was like a fire in my bones and I had to let it out. And so that's what happens to Mary here. We don't know of any other time when she became prophetic, but in this very moment, she speaks a word of prophecy. And what Mary is really doing here is she is declaring war. This is a militant song. This is a song that really could have gotten her in trouble if the wrong people would have heard her sing it. She is declaring war on some things that are very near and dear to our human existence, things that you and I take for granted and think of as good. So let's start with verse 39 and read together. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Now you remember from last week, or if you weren't here, Elizabeth was the wife of a priest named Zechariah. She was an older woman who had never been able to have a baby, but she was now pregnant. And this child would, be, would come to be known as John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has been mindful of the humble state of His servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him. From generation to generation, He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped His servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as He said to our fathers. Now Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. So before we get into the song, let's talk about the setting. This, there's kind of a beautiful story behind this. Mary hears from Gabriel that she's going to give birth to the Messiah, and the first thing she does is get out of town. And she goes to Judea, far from Nazareth, far from Galilee, to her cousin Elizabeth, her older cousin. Now, a lot of people think, and it's common to believe, that Mary left town because she didn't want people to know she was pregnant, that all the busybodies in small-town Nazareth would give her a hard time. But I don't think that's it, because it says she was only there with Elizabeth for three months. In other words, she stayed there long enough for John to be born, and then she came home. That would have been 
that would have been the wrong time to come back if she was trying to avoid her hometown. No, I think, I think Mary went to Elizabeth for two reasons. Number one, because it was a miracle baby. It was, it was an exciting event. I'm sure a lot of relatives came in from out of town to see the birth of this child. But also, think about it. Elizabeth would have been the only person on earth who might have had any understanding of what Mary was going through. Because just like Mary, Elizabeth had seen a visit from an angel. Just like Mary, Elizabeth was giving birth to a child against all the odds. If anybody could understand what Mary was going through, Elizabeth could. And not only did she understand, as soon as Mary walks through the door, she greets her as the mother of my Lord. Now keep in mind, Elizabeth doesn't know what's going on with Mary as far as we know. She's gotten no message, no uh, letter ahead of time. But as soon as Mary walks through the door, little unborn John the Baptist inside her womb does a backflip. <laughs> and she knows something's up. I find it fascinating that the first person aside from Mary who knew who Jesus was was an unborn child. Think about that. And then Mary begins to sing her song. Now, this is a song that Mary wrote herself. And this is not unusual in these, in these days, in, in ancient times, when something uh, massive, when something important would happen in the life of a person, they would, they would make a song out of it. It would be a way to remember in years to come, here's what happened and here's how I felt at the time. And we have record of many of these songs throughout the Scriptures. In fact, there's a song back in 1 Samuel. The book of 1 Samuel, chapter 2, there's the story of Hannah and her husband Elkanah. And, and Elkanah loved Hannah very much, but he was also married to another woman at the same time. Polygamy was common in that culture. And the other woman's name was Penina. Now, Penina was a loudmouth, and she was extremely, annoyingly fertile. And Hannah was, was barren. And don't you know that Penina gave uh, Hannah a hard time all the time? Well, I'm having all these kids. Look at me. I am a fruitful vine, and you're a withered stump. And Hannah pleaded to the Lord, Lord, what am I to do? I can't, I can't produce children in a culture where that's a woman's only way to contribute to society and my rival lords it over me. What am I to do? Lord, bless me somehow. If you would, if you would give me a child, I would dedicate him to you all the days of his life. And God gave her a child. And this child was born and she named him Samuel. And when, she, when he had been weaned, at the time he had been weaned, she brought him to the tabernacle and handed him over to the high priest, Eli. Which, by the way, ladies, is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. Please don't bring your babies to me, okay? <laughs> your babies are adorable. And I'm so thankful they're your babies. So uh, let's just put that on the record. Now, Hannah sang a song. And her song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1-10 through 10, sounds a lot like this song that Mary sings hundreds of years later. And I think the reason for that is Mary grew up hearing that. She grew up knowing that story and, and, and reciting and memorizing that song. And so when, when the angel comes to her and she learns this incredible news, she thinks back to that song she'd learned as a child and, and she comes up with one inspired by that one. And I think, I think that's where this song comes from, this, this knowledge of the Word of God, this excitement about what God's doing. And the song, in many ways, is very typical of what you would expect of a young Israelite girl. She starts by thanking God for even paying any attention to me. I love verse 48. She says, you've, you've been mindful of the humble state of your servant. In other words, 
Only a God as great as you could pay attention to someone as lowly as me. Here I am, I'm a teenage girl in Israel. No one cares, an unmarried young woman, and yet you've noticed me. Above all others, you've come to me. And Mary would go on to be, think about this, how amazing this is, the most famous woman in the history of the world. It ends in the way you would expect, by talking about God's faithfulness to his people, Israel. But it's that middle part that gets unusual. It's that middle part that's unexpected where Mary starts throwing down and this little teenage girl kicks our tails up and down the street. When you read the middle part of this passage, she's declaring war on three aspects of our culture that we just take for granted and many of us celebrate. So I want to talk about those three things that she declares war on because it talks, it, 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 remember, this is a prophecy. This is a word from God. It shows us where God's heart is. It shows us the life Jesus came to live as well. So, number one, she declares war on pride. She says, he has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. Now, pride is usually used in a positive sense in the English language. Take pride in your work. Be proud of yourself. Don't you have any pride in your appearance? Aren't you proud of your children? And yet the Bible consistently uses pride in a negative sense. And we as Christians know that, and so we have this idea of what pride, sinful pride, looks like. Kind of an unusual illustration. Some of you aren't going to relate to this at all, but just go with me. When I was in high school, one of the real hit songs was a song by MC Hammer called Can't Touch This. Anybody know that? All right? Um, so so it, was, it was really catchy, and, and the video was a lot of fun. Here's Hammer with no shirt on and these baggy gold pants, and he does this weird little sideways dance. And I'm going to do it for you right now. Not really. I just want to freak out my wife. But... Um, so I remember when that song was big and we would listen to it and one of my friends said, hey, have you ever really listened to the words of this song? You realize all it's about, it's just him talking about how great he is. I'm like, yeah, you know what? You're right. And that's pretty common today, especially, well, in basically any form of music, country, rap, anything in between. That's, you know, I'm so great. And that's what we think of as pride. Someone who's loud and boastful and wears flashy clothes and calls attention to themselves. And so we look at that and we say, well, I'm not like that at all. I'm very content to be who I am. And so I don't struggle with pride. And yet we're fooling ourselves. Let me just give you a few examples. You see, the Bible's very clear. Pride is the opposite of humility. It says it three times in the scriptures. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So grace, I'm sorry, the, so, so pride and humility are on opposite ends of the spectrum. That verse is so meaningful to God, he puts it in his word three different times, in, in Proverbs, in, uh, in James, and in 1 Peter. So if humility is putting yourself last and thinking of others first, and pride is anytime you put yourself first. Anytime it's about you. Pride is wanting to get your way. Pride is wanting to be heard. Pride is wanting others to notice you and pay attention to your problems and your perspective. So let me just ask you this. Have you ever been in an argument where you said, I have to win this? I, I'm just, I, I disagree with this person and I am going to bend them to my will. I am not walking away until they admit I am right. That's pride. If you have to get the last word, that's pride. Your perspective is just more important than theirs. That's pride. Have you ever complained about anything? Have you ever complained about the service at the restaurant? Have you ever complained about um, 
that play your football team's coach just called? Have you ever complained about your spouse's attitude or about your boss or about your teacher in school? Have you ever complained about the music in the worship service? Surely not. Complaining is pride. Because when you complain, what you're saying is, I don't like things, and I want my way to prevail, and so I want, the only way of getting my way is to be a squeaky wheel, and if I don't get my way, at least I'm going to make other people miserable because I'm not getting my way. That's pride. You know what? Even self-pity is pride. We think of self-pity as being very lowly and humble, but it's actually the opposite. When we're feeling sorry for ourselves, what we're really doing, what we're really doing is we're saying, no one has ever suffered like I've suffered. My suffering is unique in the history of humanity. I don't deserve this. It makes us feel better, by the way. It does. It, we, we take comfort in our self-pity because we say, hey, everything's against me. I'm important. Jesus came to destroy pride. Jesus came to pick up the gauntlet Mary had thrown down and fight to the death. He has scattered the proud, those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Jesus told his disciples, if you want to be great, the way to do it is by going to the bottom, by serving others, by thinking of others first. That's the path to greatness. Jesus told a story once about a, a righteous man, a Pharisee, highly religious, who went to the temple one day. And while he was praying, he noticed also in the temple a tax collector. And he said to the Lord, Lord, thank you for making me a righteous man, not like this tax collector. Meanwhile, the tax collector is over there praying and weeping and beating his own chest and saying, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I am the biggest sinner of all. And Jesus said, in spite of all the morality and religiosity that Pharisee possessed, it was the tax collector who walked away justified before God that day. C.S. Lewis was asked one day, what religion makes people the happiest? And he said, that's easy. The worship of self while it lasts. And he was right. You want to be happy in a short-term sense? Then do everything for yourself. Then be very proud and self-centered and worship yourself and your needs and your desires and you will make yourself happy, but it won't last. And it'll be replaced with emptiness. Folks, we need to repent. I'm not going to ask you whether you struggle with pride. We all do. I want you to identify through the power of the Holy Spirit how does your pride make itself known? Complaining through self-pity, through arguing or some other means. Repent before God. Receive the humility that He came to bring us. There's freedom in that. He came to declare war not just on pride, but also on power. He, his mother sings. She says, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but He has lifted up the humble. He's brought down rulers. Billy Graham is probably, well, no doubt about it, the most influential Christian of the last hundred years. Think of all the people he has spoken to, all the souls that the Lord has used him to bring into the kingdom. And think about this. Dr. Graham has had a personal relationship and has prayed with every president of our country since Harry Truman. Now think of the influence he's had on the most powerful men in the world over time. And yet... And yet, a few years ago when he was interviewed, somebody said, Dr. Graham, is there anything you would do differently if you could go back in time and do it all over again? And here's what he said. He said, I would, I would stay clear of politics this time. And that's a surprising answer, isn't it? 
considering his influence, and yet he knows. He knows how seductive political power can be. He knows how it can corrupt us, how it can cause us to compromise our principles, how it can hurt our witness. Dr. Graham knows there was especially one particular president he got too close to, and this president revealed himself to be much different than he had presented himself in, in, in the past, and it, it hurt Dr. Graham deeply. Think about Jesus and his encounters with powerful people. When he was just an infant, the king of his nation, Herod the Great, tried to have him killed because he didn't want a Messiah alive in his time. A lot of little babies in Bethlehem died because of Herod, because of this wicked man. Herod's son, Antipas, later on, many years later, executed John the Baptist because John had the temerity to criticize him. Later on, Jesus, on the day of his death, would stand before both Antipas and the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, and both times he would refuse to negotiate, refuse to plead for his life, refuse to do anything that might have spared his own soul, his own life. Pilate was exasperated. He said, don't you understand I have the power to put you to death? And Jesus said, you would have no power if my father had not given it to you. I'm not impressed with you. I don't need to curry your favor. My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus came to fight against the lust for power that we all feel. We're six weeks out from an election in our nation, a historic election, an election in which the candidate that four out of five evangelicals voted for won the election, and a lot of people rejoiced at that. Here's my thing. Historically speaking, it's, it hasn't been good for us spiritually when we got what we wanted in the voting booth. I'm not saying we shouldn't vote. I'm not saying that uh, you know, we shouldn't be engaged. We absolutely should. But the problem is when, when God's people gain political power, it tends to go to our heads. It tends to steer us away from God. It tends to be destructive to us spiritually. And so I say all that to say we need to pray desperately for ourselves. We need to pray that God would renew our hearts we need to pray that God would revive our souls. We need to pray that God would renovate the heart of this church. That's the vision we have, that God would renovate our hearts and, and make us a disciple-making congregation again. And that needs to spread across our country because here's the thing. Here's, here's, here's what it comes down to. If we're spending more time watching the news and reading opinion columns and debating about our, our opinions on the issues, then we, then we are spending praying for and working for revival and renewal in our own hearts and in our church and in our nation, then it's obvious that power is our true God. We need to repent of it. Jesus came to fight against that. Jesus came to say, the man in the Oval Office isn't your hope. I am your hope. My kingdom is not of this world. Third thing, Mary declares war on pride. She declares war on power. And she declares war on greed. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. The Bible is very clear. It's, there's nothing righteous about poverty. There's nothing corrupt about wealth. There are people in the Scriptures who were well off, who were serving God faithfully, and there are people who were poor who did so. So money in itself is a spiritually neutral thing. But greed is a terrible, terrible wickedness that can destroy our lives, that can destroy our relationships. And, and we think of greed in terms of fictional characters, Ebenezer Scrooge, 
Gordon Gecko from the Wall Street movie. We think of greed as a guy in an Italian suit and expensive shoes whose car costs more than our house, who buys and sells corporations and breaks them up and puts people out of work just so he can afford to buy another private island for himself. And we say, that's greed. But when you read what the Bible says about greed, you, you see that Jesus talks more about money than he talked about heaven and hell put together. And Jesus was talking to people that would be poor compared to all of us. And he was warning them over and over again, watch out, watch out. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Whatever you spend your money on will become your God. You can't serve two masters. You can't, you can't be in love with money and be in love with me at the same time. You have to choose. Jesus told a story about a farmer who one day received this incredible crop. The, the crops came in better than they ever had. Suddenly he had wealth beyond his wildest dreams and his first instinct was to build massive barns so he could store all of it and not waste a single grain. And he said to himself, I'm rich. I never have to work another day in my life. And that very night he died and Jesus called him a fool. And you and I would look at that story and say, but that's exactly what financial advisors would tell us to do, right? And Jesus would say, no, the problem is not that he saved. The problem is that he thought it was all his. And he got this incredible windfall, and his first thought was, how can I keep from losing it? Instead of thinking, how can I use this to impact eternity for good? And that's a life of a fool, and that's greed. The psychologist Christopher Kayser wanted to find out who, what, what greed really looks like? You know, what, how much do people really think they need? This is interesting. He, he interviewed people who made $30,000 a year. He interviewed people who were multimillionaires. He interviewed people somewhere in the middle. And he asked them the same question. How much money, more money would you need in order to be happy? And every single one of them said the same thing. They said, oh, about 10% more. If I just made about 10% more, I think I would have everything that I need to be happy. And he said the interesting thing about that is that if you study economics, you'll see that most people in America, at least, eventually get 10% more. You know, the economy keeps growing. They keep getting raises. Eventually, they are making 10% more. And if you ask them then, are you happy? No, no, no. I think I just need 10% more. And on and on it goes. There is no cure for greed except one. There's one cure I know of. And that's generosity. It's ironic. It's ironic. If you want to overcome greed, the answer is not to build bigger barns and to save up more. The answer is to give it away. The answer is to bless your neighbors, to bless God's kingdom. Interestingly, when you bless God's kingdom and you bless your neighbors, you love your neighbor as yourself. And you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because where your treasure is, your heart will be also. I don't want my treasure to be in a mortgage and a couple of car notes and some nice shoes. I want my treasure to be in God. I want my heart to be with Him. So Jesus came and He picked up this gauntlet that Mary had thrown down and He fought to the death. And He won. And Jesus defeated pride and He defeated the lust for power and He defeated greed. And you might say, well, how can that be? Because we're living in a world full of prideful people and we're living in a world where, where evil dictators run rampant and even people we consider good leaders use their power in unrighteous ways from time to time. And greed, hey, that seems like the, the ruling God of our nation, the almighty dollar. How can you say Jesus won? Jesus won because He lost. See, that's the irony of all ironies. Jesus won by losing. 
He was the guy who had, if anybody had the ability to come into this world boasting and bragging and look at me, it was him. But instead, he came into the world as what? A little baby. So poor, his first night was spent in a feed trough. Jesus was the man who possessed all power in the universe, and yet he gave up that power, allowed himself to become so weak, he was captured by weak and stupid men and beaten and nailed to a cross. He didn't lift a finger to stop it. Jesus had all the resources in the universe. Everything belonged to him. And yet, he willingly gave it all up. He became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. He gave it all up. And and because he did that, because he lost intentionally, Every time one of us, poor sinners, every time one of us comes to him and we give our hearts to him, deep down inside, our pride, our greed, our lust for power starts to die. And a little bit less of that is in the world. A little bit more of the kingdom of God is in the world. And someday, and someday the victory will be complete because it says in the scriptures, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when it says every knee, that includes boastful celebrities and that includes evil dictators and that includes wealthy fat cats and that includes you and that includes me. And what a day that's going to be. 